Hey, good morning, brothers and sisters. I have gifts for you today. I have power and joy and strength and encouragement and endurance to give you and all of this from Hebrews chapter 10. And so would you go ahead and open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open up that pew Bible and you'll find our passage on page 1067. So it's Hebrews chapter 10, page 1067 in your pew Bible. Aren't you glad that uh, in the future you can tell this story? You can say, I was there the day Mike McGarry read Ezra chapter 2. I mean, <laughs> incredible. And uh, I love Ezra chapter 2. That's, it's Lamb's book of life material is what it is. It's absolutely beautiful. It's, in my estimation, the highlight of Ezra chapter 2. They're in exile, but God preserves them and blesses them and brings them home. He is drawing them back home to himself, and it's a beautiful thing. All right, we're in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Now, we are uh, just a few weeks away from celebrating our 75th anniversary as a church and really excited about it. I got a, a chuckle to myself earlier this week driving through town. Another church in town has a banner up and it says, uh, 2023 celebrating 175 years. We're just babies, you guys. We're just a little baby church on the way to maturity at some point. But uh, I'm really excited that we get to celebrate this anniversary. Uh, in anticipation of that day, what we're doing on our Sundays is we are spending time with our membership covenant. Uh, in our membership covenant, the members of our church make eight different commitments. They are commitments to the Lord and to each other. And so we're taking uh, roughly one of those a Sunday uh, and looking at what God's Word has to say about these commitments. Uh, now, just as a reminder, if maybe you weren't here last week or you're new with us today, uh, this is not a members-only sermon series. In fact, it probably best serves you if you're not a member of our church. If you're a regular worshiper or even first time here, uh, you're getting a look at the DNA of our church, the, the DNA of our relationships to the Lord and to each other. Uh, and so this, what we're speaking about in this series are, is true for, I think, all Christian churches in all places and uh, sweet encouragement for us as well. Last week... We started with our commitment to the Bible, and today we're going to look at our second commitment, which is a commitment to gather and worship. And it reads this way. It might be up here on the screen. This commitment says this, we will meet together regularly on the Lord's day to worship Him and hear His word, as well as at other times for prayer, study, and mutual encouragement. The reports are alarming. It's more challenging than ever to be a follower of Jesus. The Christian voice is being squeezed out of the public sphere. It is easier to be religious in the culture without claiming Jesus. And as a result, people are walking away from Jesus and the church at an alarming rate. That report doesn't come to us from the year 2023. It comes to us from approximately the year 65 AD. And it describes the common experience of first century Christians. It sounds a lot like today, 
but it's the context in which the letter to the Hebrews was written. Uh, you had a setting in which uh, allegiance to Jesus was very costly. And those who were claiming Jesus as Lord were facing incredible pressure from society as well as persecution because of their allegiance to Jesus. And it was easier for them and for any number of reasons more attractive for some to step away from Jesus, to be religious without Him, uh, it benefited them culturally, it benefited them in other ways as well. And in response to this, an anonymous writer sat down and wrote this letter that we call the book of Hebrews. It's called Hebrews because it's written to Christians who come from a Jewish background. He is pleading with them, do not give up Christ. Hold on to Christ. He's holding on to you. Do not abandon him. Do not abandon the church. And so he argues, our writer argues for the excellency of Jesus Christ and urges Christians to hold fast to Jesus and to each other. Now in the passage we're studying today, the writer gives a passionate plea for Christians to hold on to each other by staying with the church. And what's interesting about this passage is that the writer doesn't simply call us to attend church as if we need to add something to our weekly schedule, but rather he speaks of the work of Christ in opening the way to God for all of us and what that looks like when we draw near to God in his name. He's telling us to gather in a particular way for the sake of the worship of the God who has rescued us. And so it's almost as if the writer of Hebrews here in chapter 10 grabs us by our faces and, and makes us look at the cross. He says, look at what Christ has done, what He's won for you, what He's given you, and now what's that going to look like here in our everyday lives? Why would you hold to your faith? Why would you hold to your church? And that's the heart of the argument here in this passage. Uh, our passage speaks to us about the beauty of the church. Why is it that any Christian would make a, a, a local church a vital part of their life? And what should it look like for us as brothers and sisters in the faith to commit to one another and draw to the Lord together? I want you to know that I am unashamedly in love with South Shore Baptist Church. I am so grateful for the people who have given us the church that we have for the church that we are today and in the church that we are becoming by the grace of God. Not perfect, certainly blemished, but striving in faith to reflect Christ to the world around us. I'm proud of who we are. Now, I, I think about the last few years and, and, and what God has done in and through us. Do you realize there are three new churches on the South Shore because of the privilege God has given us to be a part of His work in this area. Life Community Church in Braintree, First Baptist Church in Situate, Replanted, Emmanuel Church in Weymouth. Our church body is a part of that work, partnering together with others to see new churches born. Seven years ago, those churches weren't here. But today, they're here and vibrant and healthy. And it's a miracle of God that we get to be a part of it. I'm proud of what the Lord is doing in us I want this morning to persuade you to love our church and to commit with me to make it lovelier than ever. So our passage gives us two things that we should consider in order to make the church 
as lovely as possible. I want you to follow along with me as I read Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he's inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us Hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. There are two things you and I must consider if we are to make the church as lovely as possible. And here's the first from this passage. What we need to consider is the salvation that Jesus has given us. If I'm going to think about my place in the local church and our corporate work in the worship of God, I first need to consider the salvation that Jesus has given us. And so if we were to break this uh, passage into two parts, we'd have two paragraphs. This first one really is all about motivation. The writer tells us here why we should do what it is we're going to do. And his argument is that our motivation and ability to draw near to God comes from what Christ has accomplished for us, what Christ has given us. And specifically, he points to two roles that Jesus fulfills for us in bringing us to God, two pivotal roles that Jesus and Jesus alone can fulfill. He marks those off with the repeated phrase, since we have. First person plural, possessive. Since we have. We have two things that Jesus has done for us, roles he has fulfilled for us that open the way to the Father. Those two roles are this. The first role Jesus fulfills in verses 19 and 20, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He's our perfect sacrifice who opens the way to God. So the writer tells us in verses 19 and 20 that we have boldness to enter the sanctuary. What sanctuary is he talking about? We call this room a sanctuary, but this isn't the room the writer is talking about. He's speaking specifically about a room called the Holy of Holies, which was found first in the tabernacle, then in the temple. The Holy of Holies is the most sacred room in the temple where God's presence dwelt in a unique way and where the high priest atoned for the sins of God's people just once a year. So only the high priest was allowed access to the Holy of Holies. That room, this sacred room, was sectioned off from the rest of the temple by a massive curtain. Behind that curtain was the Ark of the Covenant, and one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go through an elaborate preparation ritual to purify himself, and then he would enter the sacred room into the very presence of God, and he would sprinkle the blood from a sacrificial animal on the Ark of the Covenant in this ceremony. And, and through this ceremony, the sins of God's people would be forgiven, and God's people were called into covenant faithfulness with their God of grace. Now, that sacrificial system was a gift of God's grace. But the writer of Hebrews argues that God never intended for that system to be ultimate, 
or to be forever. It was a temporary guardian. Just a little bit earlier in chapter 10, the writer argues that those sacrifices could not remove sin in its entirety. Rather than removing sin, those sacrifices were an annual reminder of our sin. So look back in chapter 10 at verses 3 and 4 at how the writer describes the temporary nature of these sacrifices. Hebrews 10, 3 and 4, but in the sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But Christ's sacrifice is different. He's not just some man who died. He is God the Son, very God of God, who took on flesh and died for our sin as the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. His blood accomplished what the blood of bulls and goats could never accomplish. And that's why here in verse 19, we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. Verse 20 tells us that Jesus has inaugurated a new way for us. He isn't perpetuating the limitations of the old system, but rather He's the beginning of God's new covenant with His people. Verse 20 also tells us this new way is a living way. The old covenant was based on death, specifically the death of sacrificial animals. But this new covenant is based on Jesus' resurrection. It's a new and living way to the Father that Jesus has opened up to us as our ultimate sacrifice. It's because of His death and resurrection as the one and only sacrifice for our sins that we can boldly approach God. Now, don't mistake boldness for arrogance. Don't mistake boldness for self-assurance. Our boldness is confidence in Christ's salvation work. So our motivation for drawing near to God, for worshiping Him, comes from the fact that Jesus has opened wide this way to us by being our perfect sacrifice. That's the first role He fulfills as our living sacrifice, but not only that, He's also our great high priest in verse 21. He's the great high priest who ushers us to God. Verse 21 says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So to say that he's the high priest, the great high priest, is to say that Jesus is the ultimate mediator between God and his people. He is one of one and there is no other but him. How incredible is it that he is both our ultimate sacrifice and our great high priest? He gave himself for our sin and then he brings us before God reconciled. He opens the way and ushers us in all at the same time. Look, priests don't die for people. They're merely representatives. But Jesus is different. He is sacrifice and representative both at the same time. The sacrifice for your sins and your representative before the Father. And by faith in Christ, the curtain that separated you from God is torn down forever. The way is open wide and He ushers you in. So if you think about this in comparison to the old system where the high priest once a year uh, prepared himself, purified himself, and then entered the room as the representative of the people, everything's different now in this new and living way through Jesus Christ. You have access to the sanctuary, to the most holy place, to the very presence of God. Every one of us does. Not just one high priest, but all people as if we were a kingdom of priests. And you don't purify yourself before entering. Jesus purifies you perfectly. 
And you don't send a representative. You yourself come before the Father. And you're not entering the presence of God surrounded by the stench of death. You're entering in the resurrection glory of Jesus. And your posture before God is not one of fear because of sins remembered, but of joyful confidence because in Christ your sins are forgiven forever. And the most amazing part of this picture are the simple repeated words, we have. He's ours. We have this great sacrifice. We have this great high priest. He's, he, doesn't just, he doesn't exist somewhere else apart from me. I'm not striving to get to him. By faith, I possess him. I have him. He's ours. He is yours. We have this in Christ. That reality, that existential reality, that spiritual reality, that theological reality, that eternal reality shapes our lives today. Jesus has done what is required as our sacrifice, as our priest, to open wide the way to God the Father. He ushers you in. The very nature of His reconciling work is to bring you before God. In bringing you before God, there you respond in worship of your Creator, the Sovereign, who holds glory eternal for you. Jesus has saved us to bring us in to the Father. We've got to consider the beauty of the church and the importance of the church is seen in that Jesus is bringing us to the Father in worship. But that's not all we need to consider. If we want to think more and deeply of the value and the beauty of the church, then we also need to consider the ways our salvation is lived together. The second consideration is considering the ways our salvation is lived together. So we have a repeated phrase in the first paragraph. That repeated phrase is, we have. Since we have boldness. Since we have a great high priest. Well, there's a repeated phrase in the second paragraph also. This is repeated three times. It's the phrase, let us. Let us draw near. Let us hold to our confession. Let us encourage one another. Three times we have this command. So, since we have, since we have. Since we have boldness, since we have a great high priest, let us, let us, let us. First paragraph, motivation. Second paragraph, action. Here's why we do it, and now here's what we're going to do. This is the, the flavor, the look of the church being drawn near to God. This second paragraph gives us action points in light of Christ's work as our sacrifice and our great high priest. And so this second paragraph gives us these three admonitions. And the first of these is found in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. I take that, the last half of that sentence, that description of our cleansing from an evil conscience, our bodies washed in pure water. There's a lot of scholarly, nerdy debate about what that means. Uh, I'm saying this is just a description of Christ's purifying work in our lives through our faith in Him. I don't take this as an explicit reference to the practice of baptism, though there are others who believe the Bible and walk with Jesus who would argue differently, and that's okay. Uh, but here, the writer telling, is telling us, since we're clean, cleaned by faith in Christ through His atoning work once and for all, let us draw near 
with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Who are we drawing near to? Verse 22 leaves the object empty. But we know that we're drawing near to God because three other times in this letter, the writer uses this very same language in reference to God. So in Hebrews 4.16, we are to draw near to the throne of grace. In Hebrews 7.25, God saves those who draw near to Him. Right after this, Hebrews 11.6 tells us that faith is the essential quality for drawing near to God. Now think about this. In this world, there are all kinds of barriers that prevent or hinder access to certain people. We cannot just draw near to Hollywood actors or professional athletes. You can't just draw near to the President of the United States or our most powerful political representatives. You can't draw near to a Supreme Court justice. It's newsworthy whenever these elite people are found mingling with the unwashed masses. Just last week, I don't know if you saw this story, but just last week, news story, that uh, Ben Affleck and his wife, Jennifer Lopez, were found working the drive through window at a Dunkin' Donuts in Medford. Correction, Medford, Medford Kid. <laughs> a Dunkin' Donuts in Medford Kid. That's where they were. So someone snapped a picture, and that was the news. Ben Affleck at the drive-up window. Celebrity, ha, here they are. I got my ice Dunkachino, whatever thing from Ben Affleck. That's news when we get to draw near to a celebrity. There are countless people and places that we are prohibited from accessing, but that's not the way it is with God. Think about it. God is infinitely greater than Ben Affleck. It's a line I never thought I'd say in a sermon. <laughs> infinitely greater, infinitely greater in value and glory and honor and power than any person who has ever lived on planet Earth, and you will never be turned away from Him when you draw near to Him through faith in Jesus Christ. What does it look like to draw near to God? I like one pastor's description. He said, drawing near to God is an invisible act of the soul. It's the spiritual movement of the heart of a man or a woman in which we cry out to God for help, or we express our trust in His goodness, or we lay hold of His promises, or we proclaim Him great and beautiful. We praise Him for all He has done. And how do we draw near? We draw near to God through prayer, through His Word, through fellowship with other believers, through quiet moments of openness and confession. We may draw near through rest and stillness. Ultimately, all of those encompass this broad category, we draw near to God in worship. In our intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father, we draw near to Him in worship of many kinds. Under the Old Covenant, one man on one day in one building had this privilege. But under the New Living Covenant, every person purified by Christ at all times, in all places, has the privilege of drawing near to God. First admonition, let us draw near. The second admonition is in verse 23, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. So this is an admonition for endurance. 
What does it mean to hold on to our confession? Well, it means that we're going to continue to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord through every glorious day and every hard day. Our confession is a confession of hope. And hope means something biblically. We've, we've spoken different times about what biblical hope is. It's not a wish. It's not optimistic thinking. Biblical hope is confidence that what God has promised, He will deliver. Biblical hope is confidence that what God is, has promised, He will deliver. And the writer of Hebrews tells us why we can hold on to that confession of hope. We can hold on to it because He who promised is faithful. So, in other words, we can believe that God will keep His Word because God keeps His Word. And you and I have to know this. We've got to get this in our hearts and souls that we are built for endurance, holding on to the confession of our hope in Jesus Christ. The very next chapter of this letter, chapter 11, is one of the most precious chapters in the entire New Testament it is loved by so many Christians and has been throughout the ages. And it is so special precisely because it describes men and women who held on to the confession of their hope by faith in Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example from Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 33. Look at these examples of Christians holding to the confession of their hope by faith in Jesus Christ. By faith they conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength in weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. Hold to the confession of your hope. Like these who have gone before us, who have set the pace, given us the example to follow, and were not disappointed in the faithfulness of God. Since Jesus has given us this new living way to the Father, we can live confidently as the salt of the world that is in active decay and light in the world that loves the darkness. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. We're going to draw near to God. We're going to hold to our confession. The third admonition in verses 24 and 25, let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let us watch out for one another. This admonition is the only one of the three that comes with a specific location. This care and encouragement of one another is accomplished when the church gathers together. Now, gathering is just one part of this. This writer is not advocating merely for church attendance. That's not what this is. It's not enough that we would just sit in the same room together. But rather, the writer wants us to take care of each other. Jesus is ushering us into the presence of God the Father 
so that in the presence of God the Father, we would also take care of each other. We would work like little Jesuses, ushering one another to the Father for the sake of our experience of Him and the worship of Him. And there's two ways in this brief passage that we look out for each other. The first is in verse 24. It says, we provoke each other to love and good works. Your Bible might say, stir one another up to love and good works. I like the word provoke. The last few years, we've had plenty of opportunity to provoke each other, but Hebrews tells us to provoke each other towards love and good works. Love and good works are a great pairing together because love is proven by good works and good works must be accompanied by love. So what the writer is telling us is that you bear responsibility for your fellow believers. You are responsible to see that your fellow believers practice love and good works. We bear responsibility for each other. So doesn't that sound like we need real intentionality when we get together. We can't just slip into a room and feel like we've fulfilled the gathering requirement. We are to come to church on a mission for each other. We are to come looking for those in the greatest need. God has called you to gather here not just for your sake, but for the sake of others. You are a gift of God to the people in this church to provoke us to love in good works, to stir us up to live in the way of Christ. But the other way we encourage each other is in verse 25. We are to encourage each other as we see the day approaching. So that day that's approaching, it's the day of the return of Jesus. And you might think, well, the writer of Hebrews got that one wrong. They were thinking it was happening then and still hasn't happened. Here's what you need to understand. Every Christian generation is called to live as the generation of the end time. Every generation is the generation of the last days. And, and so, as such, we are to encourage each other as we see that day approaching. The dawn is almost breaking. The night is almost over. That moment is almost here, and with that, it creates a sense of urgency and courage as we encourage one another. What are we encouraging each other to do when we gather? I think this command to gather informs the previous two admonitions. How do we draw near to God? We do so by drawing together, gathering together with each other and encouraging each other. And how do we hold fast to the confession of our hope? We do so by encouraging each other, provoking one another to love and good works, encouraging each other as that day fast approaches. It's in the gathering of those saved by the blood of Christ, the door thrown open to the throne of God, ushered in by our great high priest, that together we link arms and hearts, and with our words and our lives, we encourage one another as we gather in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I've often heard preachers preach verse 25 in the command to gather with a heaping spoonful of guilt. I, of course, am innocent of this, having never transgressed in this way in my life. But what preachers will often do out of love for the church and a love for lives and for people being together is we'll use verse 25 uh, as a way to guilt people into mere attendance, into participation in church programs. 
And that's wrong. This verse doesn't give church leaders leverage to justify every church event under the sun or guilt people into showing up as if mere attendance to church uh, fulfills the call to gather. People gather all the time in all kinds of different places, but this gathering is a specific type of gathering. Here we draw near to God and we encourage one another. So many times people will come to church because they might be interested in what the preacher has to say. We need you to come to church because we're interested in what you have to say. You've got a message to give. And that message is, brothers and sisters, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's your message to us as often as we gather. And that's why Hebrews 10.25 is so important. Yes, these things are fulfilled in many different arenas of life, but they are fulfilled in a unique and special and in a heavenly anticipation when we gather together Sunday after Sunday on Resurrection Day. Not on Saturday, a day of rest, but Sunday, a day of life. When we gather in the name of Jesus to draw near to God and encourage each other. There is nothing like the regular gathering of God's church to strengthen our souls, to lift and encourage us, to unite our hearts to one another. We need each other by God's design. Isolation is not the way for God's people. God has given you a church with whom you will draw near to Him and with whom you will hold fast to your confession of hope and from whom you will be encouraged in love and good works until the day we see Jesus face to face. You've got to consider the way we live out our salvation life with each other. So this passage in Hebrews, it it brings us together in the name of Jesus. Since he is the perfect sacrifice for our sins, and since he is our great high priest, we're to draw near to God, hold on to our hope, and encourage one another as often as we gather. So I want to do what this passage tells us to do. I want to provoke you. I want to provoke you to love and good works. I I want to provoke you to love your fellow believers and to do good works that will bless them and glorify God. So how can you love the people you worship with? Number one, learn their names. Just learn names. Be a name collector. And that's hard. And here's where it gets really tricky. You're sitting within rock-throwing distance of someone whose name you should know, but you cannot remember for the life of you. I know that game. I'm the master of that game. Hey, buddy, how you doing? That game. But I talked to that person, and here's what they told me. They're not mad about it. They appreciate the honesty that you would be so committed to remember their name, you'll ask to be reminded as many times as you need to be reminded because in that is sincerity of relationship. Be a name collector. Be a name learner. You, you see a face you don't know, get the name that goes with that face. That's one perfect way you can begin to love your neighbors and encourage your brothers and sisters in the faith. And then you know what you should do? You should pray for them. 
as you exchange conversation, details from the week behind or details about the week to come, you might have a moment then and there to pray for that person. Hey, we've got a, it's been a hard week. We've had this going on. Let me pray for you now. Encourage. Encourage. Pray, Father, help my sister, help my brother hold to the confession of their hope. Pray then and there. And then pray for them again in the week to come. And next Sunday, go up to them and be like, remind me your name again. Oh, that's right. You're my kid. Here's, I, pray, I prayed for you this week. How'd it go? Did you meet Jesus in your need? How can I pray moving forward? There's an intentionality of care in our relationships. And from there, the options are truly limitless. You might eat food together. You might uh, drink coffee together. You might go to a game together. You might bowl together. I, I don't know what you do, but you, you begin to share your lives with one another. And then one day you learn this person's in need and you've got the opportunity. Not only do you need to be the provider of encouragement, I want to provoke you to be the recipient of love and good works from your brothers and sisters. Everyone's on board with helping someone else, but we're not so easily persuaded to be helped. I'm the master of that game. I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to help you, but I'm, I'm fine. It's all good. I, I'll take care. That's all right. And I, I think there's something noble, or I'm helping you in some way. I'm I'm robbing myself of the gift of God's provision in my brothers and sisters who are there for my encouragement when I keep it to myself. And I don't know about you, here's the game that I play. I don't tell someone my need so they don't act on my need and then I get mad because no one acts on the need that I didn't tell anyone about to begin with. So receive the Lord's help. I'm provoking you. to receive the Lord's help in the form of your brothers and sisters. Be open and transparent, not necessarily with everyone. That conversation's not right for every audience and every person, but in quiet conversations with trusted friends, let them help. Above all, I provoke you to draw near to God with your fellow believers in the full assurance of Christ's work as our sacrifice and high priest, to gather regularly on the Lord's day for mutual encouragement so that for another 75 years, we would be a worshiping church, a lovely church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of our salvation, won by Jesus, our perfect sacrifice, our great high priest. Thank you for his work that brings us before your throne. We get to pray this moment. Our prayer heard and received, and you've already acted before we've voiced it because of your gracious love to us through our Savior. Help us to draw near to you and help us to hold to the confession of our hope and help us to provoke one another to love and good works as we gather for mutual encouragement. Lord, help us to be a church that's lovely as we reflect Christ to each other in the world around us. Lord, draw to you this morning, not just those that you've already saved, but those that you are saving even now, that by faith in Jesus Christ, they would be cleaned from all evil, purified utterly and completely, brought before you, as your child in the new and living way through faith in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.